When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Up Sabres, presented by the Hockey Podcast Network and the Charging Buffalo, brought to you by Thin Man Brewery. As always, I'm Brendan. And I'm Taylor. And Taylor, we got a bit of a non-traditional episode today, as we're going to be talking about the other half of our preseason predictions and looking at what our NHL league-wide predictions were for this past season, seeing how we did, what we were right about, what we were wrong about. And then, as we had talked about a couple episodes ago, we're going to get into the first of what will hopefully be many this summer variety segments that we're going to be doing. And for today's episode, we're going to be looking at one year in music and movies, and we're going to both share what we believe are our two favorite slash best albums from that year. And what we decided on was the year 1998 for that one. So very, very excited to talk about that. But first, Taylor, let's learn about how wrong or hopefully right we were. no you know in some cases actually kind of right this they're hit or miss but we're looking at two things today so if you obviously if you missed our most recent episode on monday we talked about it was our five sabers predictions for the season and then my movie quotes for the atlantic division so this one is the five predictions we had each for the nhl season and then i'm going to go through the divisions that we did with anthony of expected buffalo and so those are not that bad, but there's some big misses. I think the biggest misses are a few quotes that we had that I wrote down. And those are going to be the funnest to look back at, in my opinion, because there's some wild stuff that I believe all three of us said that to me is hilarious in hindsight. All right, so let's get started with that, with the NHL predictions that we had. Let's For starters, Brendan's first prediction for the NHL, Calgary would have more than 100 points and would win a round. Well, folks, let me just tell you, I am what you would call an idiot. I actually, looking at our conversation, that's another thing. It puts you in the perspective of last October. It is interesting. We knew that they had downgraded from Kachuk and Kachuk, Kachuk and Huberto, or Jesus Christ, Kachuk and Gaudreau to Huberto and Uyghur, but hey, that's still pretty good. And you added Kadri. You had another year of Markstrom. Yeah. Like their D was young, but was kind of coming up through the ranks. And you felt like they were going to take a step too. You have some other additional like top end scoring there with like Lindholm to Foley. Obviously now he's with New Jersey, but like the logic at least was there because we also were expecting the Pacific to be pretty weak too. Yeah. So there's a few things. I think it's interesting that it wasn't even close. Huberto and Kadri 
were huge disappointments. Yep. And I mean, Hubert has cut his point total in half, basically. Uh, and Markstrom was not good at all. Markstrom was probably the biggest disappointment. So it's weird that they still almost made the playoffs. Like they, they had 93 points, so they weren't going to get a hundred, but like one more win and they could have made the playoffs. That's weird, right? Shouldn't they have been like a 75? I know they dropped from 110 to 93, but like they lost 200 point guys and replaced them with guys who were like in the fifties and their goalie got way worse. So this, that's weird to me. I, I, I don't, I look at deep dive and how they, uh, I was kind of treaded water. I think the other thing too, is that I was expecting some regression, understandably from, from Huberto and Kadri, but not that much. I mean, I was thinking Huberto, like, all right, maybe he's just like a point per game kind of guy, like 80 points rather than being a hundred point guy. And Kadri, I mean, you're playing on that Colorado team where you just have higher line mate quality, that power, both power play units were fantastic for that cup winning team. And yeah, I was still expecting them though. I mean, Calgary's got some guys like they've, they've got some quality pieces there and you would have thought that putting them together, at least that there would be a God. I mean, they'd give you a little bit more than what they actually <laughs> ended up what their output actually ended up being, but yeah, not a, not ideal there. Not my best. I actually want to check and see too, really quick for Huberto. So he had 55 points in 79 games and he only had, let's see. Oh my God. He only had 15 power play points this season. 15. Yikes. Not, what a, what a so to put that into, to put that in context, he had four goals on the power play with Calgary this year, last year with Florida in his big 115 point season, he had five goals, which is fine. The real difference is he had 11 assists with Calgary this year and had 33 power play assists <laughs> with Florida last season. Well, so yeah, that to your point, like everyone knew regression was coming because his, his assist rate was absurd. Like guys were shooting like 20% on his passes and he was, you know, so much was in the power play, but still, man, he was never a guy that had 50 something points. Like you super expect him to be in the seventies or eighties. So not to worry. My first prediction was also wrong. I said, Carolina would win the East. They got to the conference final and as they love to do, they got swept third straight conference final where they got swept joining 2019 and 2009 Yeesh. They got goalied by Bravrovsky. They're again in the playoffs for what I think is the fifth straight year. They got to a point and it was like, oh, we can't really score. So that's tough. Carolina did not win the East. Uh, our second predictions. Uh, you were right. I was wrong, but right in spirit, I would say. Okay. And they're both about Jack Hughes. You said Jack Hughes would have 90 points at least. He had 99. I said Jack Hughes would finish second in heart voting. He did not. He finished eighth. Uh, but in spirit, he had the kind of jump I think I thought we talked about in the podcast. Totally. His star jump. And that was really it. He finished eighth. But if I looked at the voting and he pretty easily could have gotten a fifth, he wouldn't have gotten a second. I didn't know David Pashnak was going to score 60 goals for a team that had 65 wins. Oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> And then there's a couple other guys that were ahead of him too, but hey, he was right there in the range. All right, next, uh, our third predictions, both wrong to varying degrees. Uh, you had Kale McCarr 
getting a hundred points and winning the Norris and the Hart. Nice. <laughs> he had sixty-six points, but he only played sixty games. So he was yeah. on pace for ninety points. I don't know if he played eighty-two. Would he have won the Norris? Maybe. Probably would a better. Not. Probably would a better chance at a finalist. The hundred. Well, my Carlson prediction was a year, uh, year too soon because wasn't didn't I have one last year that it was going to be that like Carlson was going to return to his old self. Oh, yeah, maybe I definitely did before the 21-22 season said that Carlson was going to bounce back and go back to like Ottawa Carlson because of how bad San Jose was looking like they were going to be. And he was just going to dominate for them. Oh, yeah. Well, he was pretty good two years ago. Three years he ago, he was not good at all. Yeah. But yeah. So he did kind of have a bounce back, but this is a real bounce back. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then my third prediction, close, but not quite Sorokin for Vesna. Yeah. Which I had, you're gonna see on the Islanders later. I kind of hedge my bets on this, which is that if the Islanders were were to sneak in as a wild card, Sorokin would look good as a Vesna guy. Yep. Again, how was I to know uh, that a team was gonna a former Sabres goalie was gonna lead the league in save percentage for a 65 win team? And I should also say earlier when I said uh, Hughes was gonna finish second in Hart Trophy voting, I actually thought it was gonna be McDavid. As like a shoe in, so you obviously have McCarr, but you saw you could, uh, you know, we we had our guys in mind, but uh, that wasn't uh, I didn't actually have a hard trophy prediction. Both were just, finalists just for, second. for the respective yeah. awards. Sure, true, yeah. So Sorokin, he was second. That you know, that's it's not bad. I think Sorokin is like, I don't want to say underrated. He actually is probably properly properly rated after the season, but of this group of goalies, that's like younger than Hellebuck. He has really impressive numbers. I think it's underrated how much the Islanders fell off as a defensive team, as a defense first team, now that our boy Barry's not there anymore. And it didn't really matter at all because their goaltending is so good. Mm-hmm. And they have a good chance of being in the playoffs again next year because if he's healthy, he's great. He he was awesome. Agreed. Two years in a row now, maybe three years. Uh, so fourth for you, kind of close. The East would have the exact same playoff teams. Oh, uh, six of eight. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You had Pittsburgh and Washington out and the devils and Islanders moving in. Mm, okay. So, yeah. yeah, but that was a, I don't even know if you kept that the same when you did your division predictions. I think you might've not I don't actually, know. I don't think you did. Yeah. I don't think you did, but <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we sometimes have inconsistency on these, but that's good. That's good for hedging your bets and covering all your bases. Uh, I said for my fourth one that the biggest point drop-offs in each conference would be the Rangers and the Flames. Hmm. Uh, Flames, yes. Rangers, no. No, the Rangers only dropped off a little bit. The big drop-off was the Florida Panthers, who dropped by 30 points and still made the playoffs and then made the cup. So, weird sport. But yeah, the Flames, I believe their drop-off was 18 points. And in the West, there wasn't a lot of, you know, big changes, I wouldn't say. St. Louis was worse. In fact, you know, I might be doing this. I might be thinking, was St. Louis actually the biggest drop-off? How many points did St. Louis have? Ooh, yeah, I'm mistaken. St. Louis was the biggest drop-off. So I was wrong there, but Calgary, I was right in spirit. The Rangers had a very minor point drop-off, like seven or eight points. Uh, So yeah, not the Rangers. But I guess I was right in general about the Flames. But yeah, I forgot about the Blues. 
damn, I didn't, I don't, I think we actually, when we get to this, we're all wrong about the blues. Uh, so your last prediction was that there were, there were four 50 goal scores the year prior. You said that would double to eight. It increased to five. Mm. Uh, it was close. Though. I mean, how many guys were right on the doorstep though? Yeah, there were definitely guys in the high forties, including Tage, who we mentioned kind of jokingly. Mm-hmm. Like saying Tage will have seventy-five. Tage really could have had fifty if he didn't miss any time. All right, let me see here. I'm pulling up goals right now. So we have yeah five. Yeah, you had Tage had forty-seven. Robertson had forty-six. Jack Hughes had forty-three. McKinnon had forty-two. Ovechkin had forty-two. Shifley had 42, Verhage had 42. That's a wild one for sure still. Tempe had 41. I mean, yeah, you had 19 guys with at least 40. Yeah. Maybe next year there'll be eight. There we go. First, you know, a good prediction would have been the first year in, what is it, 30 years or 28 years that there were 260 goal scorers? Mm-hmm. That yeah. was a good one. And that's also not to mention, too, I mean – Austin Matthews put up 60 the year prior and he had a bit of a, a fall off there too. Yeah. It's cause he lied about his age. That's why he looks so old. He's true. He's 33. Now he's starting to fall off <laughs> anyway. What do we got next? My fifth one. I've mentioned it multiple times. So it'll be no surprise that I picked the Minnesota wild to win the Stanley cup. There was a nice little nugget in there that I found though, which is I explain why I'm picking them and it actually makes sense. Uh, I'm basically saying they were a 113-point team, and they have a goalie that's capable of being really good in the playoffs. He wasn't. turns out Marc-Andre Fleury's old. But I was really excited about the possibility of him going on one of his classic runs, and the team could score is what I was mainly talking about. Finally, there was a wild team that could score. Wow, did they fall off from that perspective? Mm-hmm. They dropped from, like, the third-highest scoring team to the 20s. And it was, like, aside from Kaprizov, it was just across the board. Everyone just stopped scoring. I don't really know what to say about that. That was, it's just a very strange thing. And like, even our good friend, Jordan Greenway is an example, solid guy to like three goals. And then has to get shipped off. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, a lot went wrong and it would have looked even worse if not for Philip Gustafson, who kind of saved their season. If not for Gustafson, they might not have been a playoff team. And then I would have looked really stupid. Could have gotten yeah, a lot real went wrong. bad. Yeah, so let that be a lesson. Don't ever think the Wild are going to be good or bad. Or, well, don't ever think they're going to be great or terrible because they're just going to be in some small range of good to bad. Mm-hmm. Kind of good, kind of bad. And they were uh, kind of good, I guess. Uh, but what I said when I was explaining it with the other teams, I said I wouldn't pick Colorado to repeat because, one, that's boring, and two, repeating's hard. Turns out, correct, everyone got hurt. Uh, I didn't want to pick... I believe St. Louis, I just, I didn't believe in them quite as much. And then I looked at Pacific and I was like, yikes, that's not great. I don't really believe in Calgary. I'm not, I'm not going to pick Edmonton. And then I said this quote, Vegas, this era is done. They're not winning. That will not be the last Vegas quote that we get here. Taylor. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. All right. So then we'll get to the next one where we preview the season. Like we usually do with our friend, Anthony from expected Buffalo. I'll just go quickly through. I had already said on our last podcast what my division ranking for the Atlantic was, but I had it as from top to bottom, Toronto, Florida, Tampa, Boston, Detroit, Buffalo, Ottawa, Montreal, underrated Boston, overrated Florida. The rest is kind of right there. I mean, one way or another, we're not that far off. Uh, Anthony said 
Tampa winning the division, then Florida, Toronto, Boston, Ottawa, Buffalo, Detroit, Montreal. We all have Montreal last. Brendan had it as Florida winning the division. We all believe in Florida too much. It's very clear. Yeah. Uh, Toronto second, which is correct. Tampa third, which is correct. Boston fourth. We all underrated Boston. Detroit fifth. Ottawa sixth. Buffalo seventh. No belief in the Sabres. Montreal eighth. It wasn't that. It's We talked about this, I think it was last episode, that my whole mindset was two things. One, that the Sabres could have gotten better and had an improved season last year from the year prior, but still ended up having a top 10 pick. And the other was that Ottawa and Detroit made moves that were band-aids and maybe we're going to make them better in the short term, but in the long term, Buffalo was undeniably in a better spot and it was only going to be that way for a season. And obviously I very much underrated the Sabres. And I, if I remember correctly, a big part of why I was so, I mean, not hot on them, I guess, was because of goaltending. Like, that was a, a huge thing for me. I mean, I, I liked the Comrie signing just in terms of it being like, yeah, this is probably the best case scenario where you have a guy who showed out in a backup role, but he's not old. Like, he was young enough to be able to maybe, you know, you could see what you have and step into the stars thing. But I didn't love them bringing back Anderson. And there were a lot of question marks with UPL, too. So I was not super high on them for for that reason. I also, you know, I, I, I thought that Tage was going to stick around where he was. I did not think that he was going to make the jump that he did this past season. So I was glad to be wrong about that to say the least. Fair enough. Let's move on to the Metro. The Metro. We all had the winner, right? Which is the Carolina hurricanes. I said, Carolina one, And this is where things already go off the rail. I had Pittsburgh two and Washington three wrong. We all talked about the potential for them to go over the cliff, and I'm not even sure that's what happened in Pittsburgh. It definitely happened in Washington. But, wow, we did not expect it to happen like that. Uh, a good thing, I guess, I had the New Jersey Devils fourth. I had them as a playoff team. So that was exciting. Uh, I had the Rangers fifth. Incorrect, it turns out. The Rangers were not fifth. Columbus sixth. Remember we believed in Columbus a tiny bit? Tiny, tiny bit. The Islanders seventh, so you can see I really was on both sides of the Sorokin thing. And then Philly eighth. Philly was not eighth. Columbus was eighth. Wow. So, yeah, that, I mean, that was not a great performance. Uh, Anthony, kind of in a somewhat similar spot to me. He goes Carolina one, Pittsburgh two, like me, so wrong. Jersey three, good call. He had Jersey higher than both of us. Rangers fourth, Caps fifth. That was a good call on the Caps falling off. They already started falling off the season prior in the second half, so probably should have picked up more on that. The Islanders sixth, Columbus seventh, Philly eighth. But it was funny that we all kind of were like, Columbus and Islanders, it could go either way. That was a conversation that we had. It went one way for sure, because one of those teams had like 40 more points than the other. And then Brendan had Carolina one, Washington two. Pittsburgh three, Oof. Rangers four, Devils five, then Islanders, Columbus, Philly. Oh, so I think this was a case of like you got to believe in Washington, and Pittsburgh till you don't anymore. But man, I think we probably all should have been a little bit more cautious about. Actually, Anthony had Washington fifth, so I'll give him credit on that. I guess we should have been um, 
paid more attention to the end of last season with Washington. Although one of the big things is we just didn't believe in the Rangers as much. Yeah. Understandably so. so. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the central where we all picked the, the winner right again. That's good. Brandon picked Colorado to win Minnesota second. I should be clear. If people don't know. I believe this division this year went Colorado, Dallas, uh, Minnesota, Winnipeg, Nashville, or sorry, yeah, Nashville, St. Louis, Coyotes, Blackhawks. So this is what Brendan had it as. Colorado one, Minnesota two, St. Louis three. Still some belief in St. Louis then. Uh, Dallas four, Nashville five, Winnipeg six, Blackhawks seven, Coyotes eight. One of the things that I think is interesting here uh, is Dallas, which is a good point. They were the eighth seed the year before with good goaltending. We all thought, like, let's see what their young guys do. And there seemed to be not much belief in the idea of Pavelski, Ben, and Sagan all being good, which they all were this year. That was mm-hmm. a big thing for them. So that was an interesting, interesting thing with Dallas. It's why they made the conference finals is they had good old and young guys. But yeah, like we talked about, St. Louis fell off a cliff this season. Uh, Bennington's not good. Their shooting percentage went way down. It's interesting what's going on there. They sold at the deadline, so we'll see. See what happens with them. We all kind of correctly decided that Nashville uh, was going to be pretty good because of Saros, but was going to fall off for their scoring pace, which they did. We all underrated Winnipeg. We all had Winnipeg and Nashville in the same spot. So here's the thing. We'll get in Anthony's Colorado, Minnesota, Dallas, St. Louis four, then Nashville, Winnipeg, Chicago, and Arizona. Pretty close to yours. Yep. And mine is also similar enough. I had Colorado, Minnesota, St. Louis, Dallas, Nashville, Winnipeg, Coyotes, Chicago. I had the Blackhawks last. Uh, Nicely done. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a tough battle between between them and the, the Coyotes, but they got it done. All right. And then finally, the Pacific Division, which we all thought was going to be terrible. Wasn't that terrible, to be honest. It was, a, it was kind of a fine division. So none of us had the winner, right? I said Edmonton was going to win the division, which I laughed about even in the moment. I had Calgary second. God, Calgary. Brutal. I can't believe I had them second. Vegas third. I'm glad I at least put them in the playoffs because I was tempted not to. And man, that would have looked really stupid in hindsight. Uh, But yeah, I kind of, I talked myself into it with Eichel and Stone coming back that they'd be pretty good. Well, I'll get into, we'll get into more on Vegas in a second because we have some more good Vegas quotes coming up. But I had the Kings fourth. Vancouver fifth. Anaheim sixth, which turns out, um, you know, they were worse than that. Seattle seventh and San Jose eighth. Now, I actually don't remember here. I believe Anaheim was last. San Jose seventh. I could be mistaken about that. But yeah, it was Vancouver who was sixth and Calgary who was fifth in this division. So let me read it off. It actually was Vegas, Edmonton, L.A., Seattle, Calgary, Vancouver, San Jose, Anaheim. Yeah, so basically exactly what I said. Uh, So... I uh, overrated Anaheim, overrated Vancouver, kind of underrated Seattle, but I was basically just being like, how how can you trust Philip Grubauer, no matter what kind of additions they made? 
Yeah, and then Calgary will be all overrated, including our friend Anthony. Our beloved guest Anthony picked Calgary to win the division. Oof. Yeah. He had Edmonton second, which was correct. The Canucks third. We were all Canucks pilled last we year. We all were. We for were like a there. week. And then the season started and it was like, ah, oh, they're the Canucks. <laughs> Boudreaux can't fix this shit. So yeah, man, I had them as a borderline playoff team. And the Canucks, they were not. <laughs> uh, Anthony had Vegas fourth, the Kings fifth, Seattle sixth, Anaheim seventh. And I think he correctly identified that John Gibson would not allow Anaheim to take the next step. And they didn't. There Good you call. Go. San Jose last. And so we all picked San Jose last. Uh, here's a quote. Eric Carlson is not the productive player that he used to be. Anthony? That was me. Oh, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, oh. we got some more coming up. Don't worry. Ooh. All right. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Career high in points. Highest scoring defenseman season since 1992. Brendan, oh, you, like me, picked Edmonton to finish first and Calgary second. Wrong. You also, like Anthony, picked the Canucks to finish third. Mm. Vegas to finish fourth. Mm. The Kings to finish fifth. Seattle to finish sixth. Anaheim seventh. And San Jose eighth. I didn't notice that when I was writing it, but you guys had the exact same. Except for your top two being transposed. Okay. Damn. That's tough. Not my best. Yeah, the Pacific was weird last year. But here's some fun quotes about Vegas. Anthony talking about how he doesn't trust their goaltending, and that's why they're uh, fourth for him. Persuas, yuck. Logan Thompson, I'm not sure if he's ready. And I'll be straight with you, I don't remember who the third guy is. Me, Auden Hill, I said. I said Aiden Hill's name like Auden Hill. (laughs) Brendan, he's still in San Jose. Anthony, yeah, he's still over there, but let me check who this third guy is. Oh, it's it's Aiden Hill. He said it correctly. And then Anthony goes, eh, I still like Vancouver more. Oh, my. Wow. What an exchange. What an exchange we had there. I can't wait for Anthony to hopefully hear this. I'm going to have to text him about this. Oh, yeah. Well, we can tag him. him We'll tag him in it. Yeah. Uh, Some other things Brendan said here. Oh, God. You had Vegas fourth. You said there will be five central teams. Vegas is not going to make the playoffs. You picked... Vancouver third because you said Demko, as you know, is going to win the Conn Smythe. I no, not I said he was going to win the Vesna. Vesna, Vesna. Sorry, yeah. not Conn Smythe. The Vesna. And I wanted to do something that I thought was a little edgy, a little, a little different. And then here's want to hear a correct one with why you picked Edmonton to win the division. Sure. I think this year Connor McDavid's going to be out for blood. Mm. Good one. There we go. Hundred fifty points. I'll take that. Yeah, so that's that's the predictions. Did you like all the quotes? <laughs> I loved them. They were great. <laughs> really good quotes. Really, really good. Oh, my God. Well, can't wait for our season preview episode coming up uh, next month, probably, or September, whenever we end up doing it. Going to be yeah. going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Maybe we'll kick off season five with that. Oh, that's a good idea. Get Anthony on. Maybe we can get Chad on this time around. Yeah. Anyways. Right, so do we want to hear a word from our sponsors real quick? I would love that. All right. So, folks, you know one of our sponsors is DraftKings Sportsbook. They've been our sponsor for multiple years. So, 
If you didn't know that, you're probably not a very good listener or you skip over the ads. So, folks, new customers can download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use promo code THPN. Bet just $5 to score $150 in bonus bets instantly. That's code THPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Massachusetts, call 800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY at 467-369. Kansas, call 1-800-522-4700 on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. West Virginia, gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. All games regulated by the West Virginia Lottery. Please play responsibly in partnership with Hollywood Casino. Charlestown Races in Connecticut. Help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. 21 and over in most eligible states, but age will vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific response gambling resources bonus bets expire seven days after issuance one boost per eligible game opt-in required max bet fifty dollars ten plus leg requirement for 100 boost eligibility wagering and deposit restrictions apply and our second sponsor folks is thin man brewery and as we mentioned before it's summer did you guys know that it's summer it's such a nice time of year around here I don't know why you're spending it listening to a hockey podcast, but maybe you're having some fun. Fair question. <laughs> oh, man. So Thin Man, located on you know Chandler Street, but also located in grocery stores and in our hearts. One thing that you might enjoy this summer is the Minky Lizzie. We mentioned before it's a raspberry sour ale, and it's kind of like Minky Boodle. 7% fruited sour and... Unlike regular beers that you could be drinking, proceeds from this beer will benefit Insight Ukraine, a Ukrainian human rights organization that supports the LGBTQ community. So there's no four-packs available for this. So this one, it can't be in your heart and it can't be at a grocery store. It's only at Thin Man Chandler. So check that out. Good beer, I'm sure. Uh, and it's also worth noting, there's a concert series collab so i'm going to read from this announcement from last week that thin man made the elmwood village association thin man brewery excited to announce a new collaboration beer to support the eva's bidwell concert series it's a west coast ipa coming your way sales from the beer will directly benefit the elmwood village association's summer concert series so more information on that soon i'm sure but folks in the meantime all your favorite beers are still around. They're all available at Chandler Street and, like I said, in grocery stores and whatnot. So Pills Mafia season's coming up. Preseason's coming up in less than a month. Minky Boodle, great summer beer. Great summer four-pack to have. If you're, you know, you're uh, hanging out in the backyard with your friends, maybe you're on a porch having some beer, mm. playing some cornhole. What's better than a good porch beer? Nothing? No, I don't think so. I was going to say the birth of your first child, but I don't know. I never had one. Yeah, probably not. So, Thin Man Brewery, check them out. What do you think, Brendan? Anything to add? Nope. Thin Man, we love them. It's great. Go to Chandler. Good food. Good drinks. Good times. Good people. Thin Man Brewery. Follow them on social media, too. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's right. That's All right. Do we want to switch it up now and get away from some of the hockey talk here, Taylor? Let's do it. All right, folks. So as we had talked about a couple episodes ago, when it gets into the summer, there's oftentimes not 
a ton of hockey for us to talk about. A lot of times we'll talk about things that we're looking forward to in the next season or hypotheticals or whatnot. But also, if you've been a listener to this show for a little bit, you know that Taylor and I like to talk about non-hockey things, too, from time to time. And especially that's the case in the summer. And so, as we had discussed previously, moving forward until we get into the start of the new season and season five of, of Straight Up Sabres, we want to, whether it's full episodes or segments on episodes, do kind of like variety segments. And so... As you also probably know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that Taylor is a very big movie guy. I'm a very big music guy. And so we love talking about these things. We love giving the our perspectives to each other on these things. And so we decided that a cool thing for us to do as part of one of the, the many, many different segment ideas that we have coming up for these kind of like variety sketch or uh, segments is to pick a random year and discuss some of our favorite albums on my end and on Taylor's end, some of his favorite movies and what we deem to be the the best in that time. And obviously this is a mix between what we like quote unquote objectively think is the best, but also, I mean, we have our own individual taste. We have our things we like, our artists we like, our directors and actors that we like. And so of course there's our own little personal touch on it. And so as we said at the top of the episode, we decided that we were going to do 1998 for our first one. And we're going to revisit that. Taylor's going to give two of his top movies and I'm going to give my two top albums from 1998. So Taylor, would you like to go first and talk about one of your top two favorite movies from 1998? Yeah, I have two, but they kind of work in tandem with each other. Um, okay. so do you want me to talk about both of them or just one? Uh, do you want to do one, 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 one? Or what do you, what do you think? Um, or you can do them both together if you want. All right, yeah. So I'll ju- I'll just do both of them because all right. So I was looking at these years. I think if we do this again, a lot of years, I might have some more. Uh, I don't know. Let's say less popular. Some things that people might not know as much, uh, movie wise, or something I can recommend that you haven't heard before. I looked at ninety eight, and there's two that just jump out, and I couldn't honestly, in good conscience, do any other ones. And they're ones that you've definitely heard before. You've I've seen before, I should say. And you've definitely heard of, and maybe you've seen multiple times because they're both very popular, but in very different ways. I think it's it's an interesting thing. And I actually think there's a larger point uh, surrounding the fact that this is Barbenheimer week, and we're recording on this uh, fine Thursday. But let me get to that later. So my two movies are Saving Private Ryan and The Big Lebowski. So these are, like I said, they're not very niche movies. They're They're both immensely popular. And like I said, in different ways. So let's start with Saving Private Ryan. Um, what I wanted to say about them, you know what? I'll say this about both of them first and I'll get to that Barbenheimer point. I think these in different ways are considered air quotes here, like male movies. People would say boy movie. People wouldn't say male movie, boy movie, movies for boys, men, males, whatever. And I think, I hope that stuff like that kind of goes away and that people, people don't think of movies like that. Cause I think you're limiting yourself. And you're kind of – it's kind of a, a, a kind of rude way to put it to other people. Like you you have to like this kind of movie or this kind of movie, but or I shouldn't like this movie. This movie's for this kind of person because movies are good or they aren't. And I think that's what I was getting at with the Barbie Oppenheimer thing. The, this is a classic one, Barbie movie for women, Oppenheimer movie for men, but really neither of them are actually like that. And I think you're going to see a lot of crossover. I'm going to both in the next two days. I'm sure I will see that. So I want to see those things disappear. So when I say these are movies that are traditionally for men, 
I gotta say, Saving Private Ryan, probably immediately that wasn't true. I'm sure. Like it, it made way too much money for that to be just men seeing it. Uh and I kind of feel the same, I hopefully about Lebowski. And I I know a lot of women that like it. So I hope these movies are thought of as movies for everyone. But let me get into it more. These movies both came out in 1998, and they were not similar hits at the box office. Saving Private Ryan was the third highest grossing movie in 1998. Big Lebowski was 98th. Uh, not at all. Yeah, right. Not a hit at all. Uh, and we're and you could even say Saving Private Ryan was number two of that year because the highest grossing movie of 1998 didn't come out in 1998. It was the Titanic, and despite the fact that it came out in December of 97, it made more than twice as much money as anything else that came out in 1998. Uh, but yeah, still Saving Private Ryan did great. Second highest grossing movie that came out in 1998, and nominated for a bunch of awards and all that. And in fact. These movies both have another important thing in common, which I'll get to in a second. But yeah, you know Saving Private Ryan. You've heard of it before. It's a World War II movie. It was nominated for – sorry, it was nominated for 10 Oscars. It won five of them. It won five Oscars. That's crazy. Oh, it, no. Yeah, it has one of the most memorable and uh, visually sound, just all around most impactful and like harrowing scenes to opening scenes to any movie ever. So if you haven't seen it, I'll explain a little bit. It's a fictional movie, but it's about World War II, so some things about it are real. It starts on Omaha Beach on D-Day, and it's from the perspective of American soldiers who are invading Normandy. They're storming the beach at Normandy, so it gives you that perspective of what that was like, how many people didn't make it, how brutal it was to be there, people who died or didn't die, the kind of things you saw even if you made it, and it's just a harrowing, super long scene, uh, just a it's it's really it's a tough watch but it's incredible it's it's almost like 15 minutes long i want to say of that but the rest of the movie from there uh is hinged off a point of characters you don't know which are these brothers ryan brothers and four of them are dead so all because of different ways on d-day which a lot of people died on d-day and they have one brother who's not dead and because of the sole survivor policy, which I believe was real, they have to bring him home, except that he's out and, you know, it's the 1940s and then they're in the middle of war. They don't have an easy way to do this. So a group led by Tom Hanks, including Vin Diesel and other character actors you might recognize, they all have to go and get him. That's the basic plot of the movie. And when they do get him, they finally have him. There's a big battle that he has to survive and they all have to survive. Almost everyone dies except for a couple of them. And it's set around – a older version, by the way, Private Ryan, once you get to meet him, is played by Matt Damon. But it, the movie's set around his older – the older version of himself visiting his old captain, played by Tom Hanks, at Arlington and thinking about the sacrifices that everyone made for him. So that's basically the plot. It's a very interesting movie. It's a Spielberg movie, and there's a few things that are interesting about that. One, Spielberg, one of the greatest living filmmakers, one of the greatest filmmakers in American history. He wanted to make a movie that – helps people understand what it was like to be in World War II. And there had been more movies before, obviously, intense ones even, like Platoon. But it's hard to, without the better film technology that developed over the years, it's really hard to get a real feeling for that. So you need someone that's a quality director like him who exists in a time with good technology and has a lot of money to make this movie. And he did. He had all those things. So that worked really well for, for him, and he did an incredible job with that. Some people didn't like some of it. Uh, and in fact, it's uh, it is unpopular. Some people because of how violent it is, and how they some people think that 
it's uh, inappropriate or that they're reveling in this type of violence. But that was definitely not the intention. So I think a couple interesting things with this. First of all, I think of all the war movies post Platoon, uh, it's the most. I would say it's probably the highest quality, but it's the best from a human and character standpoint, like no doubt to me. And it also it comes at an interesting time because a lot of war movies for decades at that point were more negative. And like I said, this wanted to show you what war was like and the futility of war and how there's – I'm not, not to spoil it for anyone, but a plot point about how being kind to someone can lead to your own demise and the demise of your friends in situations like this. It wanted to show all that off, but it kind of showed off showed it off in a way that it was about sacrifice. And a lot of war movies post Vietnam were not really like that. And it is interesting if you you if you're any kind of uh avid moviegoer or even if you're not, you've probably seen a lot of war movies. And I think the recent there's been some recent Middle East ones that haven't exactly I would say how to put this they don't have an overall viewpoint on the war so maybe some of them do but a lot of them not exactly so that's hard to say what's going on with those ones but before that when you see world war one movies you see especially more recently the immense amount of death the boredom the digging in trenches the brutality of it and you do that without really an understanding of why and any kind of payoff because you can't it's hard to like all quiet in the Western front came out last year. And that's obviously a very sad book and basically everyone in it dies. But even if they didn't, there isn't really a payoff for these countries because you know, they're at war again in like 20 years. So world war two, I think allows for the sacrifice to be understood because it's just associated with America wins decisively on both of these. Uh, and it, it creates not creates but that leads directly into a boom economic time and something that's considered sort of an idyllic era in america whereas you know that's obviously not the case in vietnam it's not really the case in korea the forgotten war there are barely any korean war movies and i think with people talk about also not just those kind of wars but the cold war or even the first gulf war and at the end of those those are kind of you know, not really decisive victories. Like you can say America won both those wars, but there's not like a VE day or VJ day. So I think by the nineties, a lot of people now that by that point, the greatest generation was really aging, but a lot of them were still around and, you know, boomers are fully adults and it's 20 plus years past Vietnam. There was really a, a, a revamped emphasis on looking at world war two and what happened there and celebrating world war two and its veterans. And I think that this movie kind of comes in on that. A lot of people talk about it as a movie about the quote-unquote last good war that the United States fought, which is more of a political point that I don't really want to get into. But I think it's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of validity to that, and it's there's definitely an understanding at the very least. It's the last war that we really, I guess you would say that there's a, a final victory for that you can celebrate, and that. That gets back to this point. It understands. It gets to the point of the sacrifice and what what was it all for? What it was was it worth it? Uh, and, and I guess being thankful for a, a veteran, something like that. Uh, a couple other things that are interesting in that for this movie. One is they did a special screening for World War II veterans, and for a lot of them, it was way too hard to watch, and a lot of them had to leave. And in fact, this movie. 
uh, because it was at a time where there's still a lot of World War II veterans alive. Veterans Affairs said to create a special phone line for people to come in and talk about calling and talk about their experiences watching the movie, uh, which is it's pretty wild. I never knew. Uh, Wow. Yeah, it's I mean, it makes sense, though, if you think about it. So, yeah, in general, it's an incredible movie. There's so much I like about it. Just one thing in particular is they finally get to Private Ryan and he's Tom Hanks is talking to him, Tom Hanks's character and just kind of realizing like, wow, this guy's kind of dumb. <laughs> we really, we're really sacrificing everything for this guy. And basically that's after the movie, the character has to uh, come to the realization that I have to live up to a sacrifice. And that's what he says at the end. Basically, I hope I lived up to it. Um, another thing that I really like, is the fact that Tom Hanks's character is a school teacher. It really kind of drives home like these are really just the people that fought in World War II are not trained like professional 20 years in the military type guys. It was everyone ever. They needed all hands on deck. So it was that that kind of drives home that point. Um, and then one thing I guess that people um, have a quibble with, which is the the format of the movie, which it's all when you see him at Arlington in the beginning, he's thinking back on all these things. And that could be D Day, all these other things. Uh, Private Ryan is. But there's like an hour plus of the movie, the bulk of the movie, that it's just all those people like Vin Diesel character, Tom Hanks' character, all those guys, the group that's going to get him. How does he know anything that happened with those guys? He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't privy to any of those conversations. So it's kind of, you have to kind of imagine that. It's not all his memory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, yeah, I think that said pretty much everything I said I, want, I wanted to say about the movie. But real quick, this kind of leads into the Lebowski thing. Uh, Saving Private Ryan at the time was the most successful home rental movie of all time. It made $44 million on rentals in two months. Oh, my God. And anyone who remembers how cheap rentals were from Blockbuster back in the day, you know. Yeah, that's, that's significant. It's insane. Yeah, that, it's absolutely absurd. And then there's a special two VHS set and DVD eventually. But it lived on. It still lives on partially because of home video. And that leads me to the Big Lebowski, which only has any kind of life at all because of home video, uh, made, I believe, less than $20 million domestically in theaters. Uh, it was not any kind of hit at all. And it's it's people would say it's a definition of a cult classic. I think with Big Lebowski, it actually is so popular on streaming, home video, all that. It's no longer a cult classic. It's too popular. It's just this weird movie that had some like kind of backwards type of distribution, putting it that way. It, it's not because a lot of these movies back then did as well. Many people saw it renting it from Blockbuster or wherever as in theaters. Lebowski, it's like 20, 30, 40 fold. Like it's not as many. It's way, way, way more uh, to a ridiculous degree. And that's not even just uh, people seeing it years later like me. It's people in like 1999 or 2000 or 2001 seeing it like just just absurd. So little background on this. It's a Coen Brothers movie. And the Coen Brothers, even though they've never been hugely commercially successful, they they did good business like they used they existed in this thing that used to exist called the middle class of movies but they also did have some highbrow stuff and they'd actually i believe just won the best original screenplay oscar for fargo like the year before this and they released this movie which although it has a really cool and 
just all around awesome cast. It is definitely a weird movie. It's it's not plotless, but the plot is so disjointed. Uh, or there's or I guess there's just a lot of movement to different areas and it doesn't really have a satisfying conclusion. But there's a lot of underlying points to it. And I think one of the really interesting things is how many different interpretations there are. So just to, again, if you are a person who hasn't seen this movie, highly recommended, like Saving Private Ryan. Again, very different. And here's the basic plot. Jeff Bridges plays a guy named Jeffrey Lebowski, who goes by the name The Dude. Some guys break into his apartment and looking for money. And he's like, I'm poor. I don't have any money, blah, blah, blah. And they they realize that they went to the wrong place and they piss on his rug and it ruins his rug and he wants to get a rug, the rug back. So he goes to the guy that they were actually looking for, uh, which is a rich guy named Lebowski. I guess he's the big Lebowski in this case and wants to get a rug from him. But then he gets roped into eventually trying to get back this guy's wife from kidnappers, nihilists or whatever. And it's it's really more about just ransom and getting money from him. But then there's just all these offshoots. He, Lebowski loves bowling. He's friends with John Goodman's character, Steve Buscemi's character, Walter and Donnie. Uh, there's a random segment where John Saturo's character is bowl- a guy named Jesus is a really like suave bowler. This is a very intense bowling league they're in. And there's just a million offshoots. I can never properly explain it, but it's immensely quotable. You've no doubt heard it quoted before, no matter who you are, if you're a person who speaks the English language. Um, and it's like I said, very funny, uh, very interesting. And there's just a lot, I guess I would say of different interpretations you can come up with. So this is from the Wikipedia. I thought this was super interesting. Many critics and audience have likened the film to a modern Western while many others dispute this or like it to a crime novel resolves around a, a mistaken identity plot. Uh, people called it an inspired absurdist take for a weird, peculiar Americana. And then, like, for example, 2008 Slate published an article that interpreted it as a political critique centering around the viewpoint that Walter Sochek in the movie played by John Goodman is a neocon. Um, A journal article by Brian Wall published in in the feminist journal Camera Obscura used the film to explain Karl Marx's commodity fetishism and the feminist consequences of sexual fetishism. In the rug that tied the, really tied the room together in 2001, Joseph Natali argued that the dude represented a counter-narrative to a post-Reaganomic entrepreneurial rush to return on investment. And it's been used as a carnival-esque critique of society as an analysis on war and ethics as a narrative of mass on mass communication and U.S. militarism and other issues. So I never would have thought about any of those by itself. I think there's a, a billion other interpretations people have. But I think what's really interesting is this movie that basically no one saw. It's not just a movie. It's really spawned It's spawned into things like bowling alleys, obviously super important um, because so much of the movie involves bowling and you know the phrase, fuck it, dude, let's go bowling. So you see murals there, bowling alleys that are dedicated to the Big Lebowski uh, people drinking white Russians, which is another key plot point in the movie. And then you also do see like murals of the dude. People uh, uh, 25 years later dressing up as the dude for Halloween. I dressed up as the dude one time for Halloween. It's kind of an easy costume. Mm-hmm. Our friend, our friends, the Dreebots dressed up as Walter and Donnie one time. That's a great costume. And there's just there's just so much to it. Like part of it is the Coen Brothers thing. They're just so incredible at writing. And they're these weird kind of misadventures that it's just stupid people kind of failing to be criminals or stupid people failing to be clever sly it's not in that way dissimilar to burn after reading 
So, and it's just a great cast. Like, it's just like, oh, wow, Julianne Moore is here. Philip Seymour Hoffman is here, just in these different scenes. And it's like, oh, wow, look at this guy, this guy, this guy. Uh, there's just, and also, I guess, to the point of it being interpreted a certain way, it's often in the movie, you're just in a different kind of movie all the time. And it's just like the dude is being taken from place to place. And there's, you know, there's a million, it, you could look on these on your own, but about there's a million things about how the dude is not actually common serene. He's not actually taking it easy. He's actually very quick to anger. Whereas Walter, who seems like he's always about to burst, is actually way more in control. There's a bunch of things like that. But I think what's really just interesting about it in general is that I think if you took a poll of how many minutes spent among all of us collectively watching a move watching movies, I think Lebowski for people under 50 or maybe even people under 40 would be insanely high in the list. And like I said, 98th highest grossing movie of 1998. That's uh, nuts. Yeah, really wild. But what a movie, what a picture. And it's uh, it really has a life of its own. I assume it'll be a big movie uh, for the rest of my life. I assume people will be watching it. It just it seems to always just get passed down. Like, for example, Brendan, I saw Saving Private Ryan when I was super young, when it had just come out on DVD. I don't know. I think, I hope people that are in Gen Z and younger will watch Saving Private Ryan. I didn't see Lebowski until I was a senior in high school. Yeah, I didn't see it until I think after college for me. Yeah, mo- like a lot of people. Same thing, though. I, I did see Saving Private Ryan like very, very young. Yeah. Which probably <laughs> is not the best thing. Yeah, we get a DVD player in like 2003. So I was 10. Oh, boy. <laughs> that. That I was probably around the same, actually. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, what a movie that was. I can't imagine seeing it in theaters. Uh, but yeah, so. Both of these movies very important for home box office. You know, that's just renting it, buying it. Super important. Honestly, one of the most underrated things, and it's weird because these movies getting made, it's just so different. Like, even though I mentioned the middle class of films earlier, Lebowski, you could say even is kind of below that by the 90s mm-hmm. standards. And Second Private Ryan's above that. That was like expensive Spielberg. Like they put all this money into it, all this stuff like that was a that was a Tom Hanks Spielberg movie. That's a high budget movie, uh, but there was all these middle budget movies that were allowed to be made because people knew that if they didn't do great in theaters, they had the insurance of making their money on home video, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, it's a uh, another kind of downside of streaming. Hmm. Good point. Very good point. The movie guru over here. Yeah, I wish I, but here's the thing. I just named like what ended up being probably the two most rewatched movies of 1998. I don't really have like a, I didn't have a like kind of ace in the hole for that year. I wouldn't I'm say. I'm disappointed you didn't do the water boy. I'm a little sad about it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot less to say. And that is probably up there. If that's probably a top three, I would say the most rewatched movies of that year, because 1998 is kind of a weird year, but there's, I mean, there's a bunch of movies that you would, um, that people remember and like yeah. there's a bunch of smaller movies i wish i had more to say about like urban legend and bullworth and stuff like that armageddon came out that year wow. something about mary which i like yeah. dr doolittle which i don't even know why i mentioned that so that's the armageddon and deep impact year uh the terrible godzilla movie rush hour goodwill hunting but i don't have as much to say truman show i feel like truman show out. man that's a that's a flick right there yeah i love that uh so that's that's something that if i it would watch it more i could talk about but when we do this in the future i think i'll have a more esoteric answer or maybe okay. just like something that uh i'll be able to go like scene to scene and here's what i liked here so you know watch out if we ever do 1996 
Okay. I, I would definitely be into doing 96. That'd be cool. Maybe we'll do like a different decade for the next one. We can go back to the nineties after that. Yeah. You also mentioned 95. Yep. I have a lot for 95. Okay. I don't know how I would narrow it down, but 95 actually, I think I would maybe prefer, but we can, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah. All right. Should I get into my albums now? Let's do it. All right. Very, very cool. So I'm really excited to talk about both of the the records that I chose here. But to start things off, I'm going to dive into Aquemini by Outkast. So I think I've said it on here previously that Outkast is one of my favorite artists of all time. And I think Andre 3000 is on the Mount Rushmore of all time rappers. Um, Aquemini is Outkast's third album. It dropped September 29th, 1998. Their previous album was AT Aliens, and it really thrust them into the mainstream. So this was a highly anticipated album uh, leading up to and upon its release, given uh, its predecessor's commercial success. So there's a lot of components to this record that make it so special. And one that really stands out is the amount of genres that Outkast drew influence from on the album. There's funk, soul, psychedelic rock, prog rock. There's some spoken word, and then there's gospel, and among many other genres. And best of all, there is a ton of live instrumentation, which makes the sound even better. Plus, on top of that, there's a few really great features on the album. There's Erica Badu, George Clinton from Parliament Funkadelic, and Raekwon of Wu-Tang Clan, Clan are all contributing to the album. So, as I mentioned before, since Outkast had so much success with AT Aliens, which was their second album, they were given a lot more creative control in the making of the record and had a bigger budget for the record, and they totally leaned into both. They were pretty much living out of the studio uh, that they were recording the album in for weeks throughout its creation and had a pretty wide variety of different studio musicians coming through the studio daily, which meant that they were embracing a lot of improv and experimentation throughout the creation of the record, which I really think lends to how diverse the album is uh andre 3000 and big boy generally speaking complement each other so well with both their styles and what they bring to the table musically and lyrically and i think this album i, th I think of this album as the first example of them really stepping into their own as individual artists while maintaining that cohesiveness that makes outcast special um, you know, and I, I bring up the point about stepping into their own as individual artists because two albums later for them was the the very popular speaker box slash the love below double album where they each had each album or each side of it. One side was big boy side and the other side was Andre 3000 side. And so I think that's really cool is that you have with Outkast. I mean, it's it's these two incredible artists in their own right. And, you know, they're able to really, uh, better than a lot of other artists, bands, whatever you want to call it, kind of toe that line between leaning into the individual individuality of each of the artists while still maintaining that cohesive feel that makes Outkast Outkast. So lyrically, the album is is really special. The, the themes explore individuality, stepping into adulthood, drug use and addiction, love, loss, personal growth, among others. And Aquemini is an album that is cohesive and should be listened to as a complete product to truly appreciate it. But man, there are some truly special standout tracks. Uh, a year or two ago, 
there was a tweet that was making the rounds that went viral that was along the lines of quote this with what you believe are examples of, of perfect songs. And one of the ones I mentioned was the art of storytelling part one. So this was the third single from the album and it's appropriately named, it's appropriately named that because it is a masterclass in lyrical storytelling. It's got a really catchy hook and a, a beat that sticks in your head, but the lyrics for me are what really makes this song special. It's maybe Andre 3000's best verse lyrically of any outcast song in my opinion. Uh, the other two singles are also total standout tracks in the, the lead single, which was Skew It on the Barbie, and then the other se the second single, which was Rosa Parks. Uh, as is the case for so many Outkast songs, the hooks on both of these songs are undeniably catchy. And once you listen to them, they just get stuck in your head that you'll just want to continuously revisit both of the songs. Uh, a crazy story, too, actually. So Rosa Parks herself actually sued Outkast for using her name in the song and as the title. Uh, the case was initially dismissed on First Amendment grounds, but eventually it was reopened five years later and it was settled. And after and part of the settlement was Outkast agreeing to establish a youth educational pro or uh, multiple youth educational programs throughout the country that were focused on Rosa Parks and her importance in U.S. history, which I think is kind of a cool little nugget about the album as well. Um, but back to the catchiness, the, the same could be said for Spotty Adi Dopalicious, which isn't really a rap, uh, considering it's it's Andre and Big Boy doing spoken word throughout the entire song, as I mentioned previously. Um, and, and the lyrics on it are, of course, great, or the, the poetry, whatever you really want to call it. But what is so damn good about this song is the horn section. Whether you realize it or not, you have probably heard this horn line before. And it is just, it's the definition of infectious. If you have not, if you don't know what I'm talking about with that, just go listen to it. Like the horn line is just so goddamn good. Um, so the album itself, it gets released. It's a massive success right away. It went double platinum in less than a year, and it's widely considered one of, if not the best outcast album, in addition to being considered one of the best hip-hop albums of all time, and in my opinion, one of the best albums of all time in general. Uh, for me personally, it's easy. It's easily in my top 15 albums of all time, and it's kind of cool because... You know, I've talked about it many times on here before, too, that like I'm a huge Beatles fan um, and I, I view Outkast and the Beatles in, in a lot of ways similarly, just in terms of like where they both stand in terms of the the greater big picture in terms of like history or uh, historically speaking with like their respective genres and just in terms of what their importance is to music. And so it's kind of cool for me with this album. I think one of the reasons why I have a really cool relationship with it is that I view this album and its follow up, Stank Anya in the same way that I view Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles in that I am in a constant state of forever going back and forth as to which album is the group's best. So all in all, I love this album so much. I would love it if we ever end up doing like 2000 or, or whatever to do like a follow-up to this on, on Stankonia because that is just, uh, again, an amazing album. There's so much, like that really, like this album, like really, I think... Um, expanded upon ATLians and that ATLians was kind of like that first taste of like really widespread commercial success for Outkast. This album, I think they leaned into it more with a lot of like the experimental nature of it. And again, massively commercially successful, but Stank Onya is just like, that's the one that everybody knows that like really, I think out made Outkast like a mainstream may stay when it comes to, I mean, like Miss Jackson, um, the, the way or not the way you move um uh spaghetti junction like there's just so many great songs on that album so i'd love to get into that someday but that is my first one stank on you by outcast taylor do you have any thoughts on on outcast in general or that album if you've ever given it a listen i like them they're cool guys 
Good, good. All right, well, moving on to the next one. This one is another one of the uh, the best albums ever. I've talked about it on here before. I think I've done recommendations for a couple of the songs on this album um, throughout the past couple of seasons when we do our end of episode recommendations. But one of the best albums ever is my second choice, and that is The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by, of course, the one and only Lauren Hill. This album is in my personal top five albums ever. I rank it as number five uh, of my all-time favorites and all-time best albums, I should say. Uh, it is the true definition of a masterpiece of a piece of music. I heard this album for the first time all the way through about five years ago, and it was one of those records where... As you're listening to it, you realize just how special it is. And after you finish it, you just you feel like you've discovered something that changes the way that you think about music. Uh, it is it's neo soul and R&B at its best. And Lauren Hill shines throughout the entirety of the album through her lyrics, her rapping and her incredible, incredible singing. Um uh, similar to the last album, there's there's such a wide variety of of styles and, and song structures throughout the album, which in part makes it so interesting. There's also, like the last album, some really, really great features on this album, including Carlos Santana, Mary J. Blige, and D'Angelo. Uh, lyrically, it's very vulnerable, and it touches on a lot of, of personal and heavy topics for Lauryn Hill, such as motherhood, family, being a woman in the music industry, uh, definitely a lot about her breakup with the Fugees, love and, and heartbreak. So that tweet that I referenced earlier about perfect songs, I think I had maybe like eight of them that I had mentioned in that tweet. And this album has two, in my opinion, that being X Factor and Doo-Wop, that thing. X Factor moved me to my core the first time that I heard it. The dynamics of the song and the way that it builds as it goes along, combined with Lauren Hill's singing, just it gives me chills pretty much like every time that I listen, especially when it gets to that end part. She's just she's got this crazy range and uh, as it is like her vocal range is nuts but then her vocal dynamics with how she's able to go from like this very clean softer voice to a, a raspy powerful belt as the song builds towards the end is just unbelievably special and doo-wop in my opinion is just like downright rap perfection great flow memorable lyrics and a sing-along hook that just sticks in your head like immediately upon hearing it. It just does not go away. Uh, other highlights for me are I Used to Love Him fe featuring Mary J. Blige to Zion featuring Santana and Lost Ones, which is the other single from the album. It is a, a no-brainer, no-skip album for me. So The Miseducation of Lauren Hill dropped on August 25th, 1998, and it was Hill's First and only solo album, incredibly. I, I, She, of course, gained fame through her work in the Fugees, but this was her first chance at stepping into this, the spotlight solo. Uh, the album was an immediate success upon release. It sold 442,000 copies in its first week, which broke the record for first week sales by a female artist. It was nominated for 10 Grammys, and it won five. And as I mentioned before- That's crazy. That's the same thing as Saving Private Ryan. Yep. Isn't that wow. wild? Damn, what a year. Wild year. What uh, a year for Steven Spielberg and Lauren Hill. Really, two people that are just synonymous with one another. <laughs> As I mentioned before, though, incredibly and also very sadly, it's Hill's only solo album. Over the years, she's had a, a ton of features on, on other artists' albums and songs and whatnot, but this is her only full-length studio album and a solo studio album, I should say. And there's been a handful of reasons that she's given over the years as to why that's the case, but it's just unbelievably unfortunate that we haven't gotten a proper follow-up to this album. But 
with that being said, this is an album that, in my opinion, truly can stand on its own. And it is it's it's going to stand the test of time and will forever, in my eyes, be one of the best albums ever. And similar to, as I mentioned with Andre 3000, this album for me, even though she only has one album, and I know that there's a lot of things that go into this conversation and everybody obviously has their different ones. But this also for me cements Lauren Hill on my Mount Rushmore of rappers, like all time rappers. Um, it is, like I said, in every sense, uh, a masterpiece of an album. And it, I mean, if you look at pretty much like any greatest album of all times list, like it's, it's going to be up there on this. And for me, I rank this as my fifth best album of all time. Wow. Yeah. So this is, is that like the best one, two punch any year has for you? I don't think, I don't know. I mean, it's, I would have to really sit and think about that more because I mean, I'm just thinking like 67, 69, 74, 95 has some really, really good ones. Um, and then, I mean, even when you get into the two thousands, like it's a little bit slimmer pickings because I think like a lot of like the quality of, of music at that point, especially just like where pop music was kind of going and even rap to an extent too, it, it diminished a little bit for me, but even still, I mean, it's tough. I, I would have to really think about that. Maybe that's something that we can even look at next time uh, or for one of our upcoming ones is like what year has the best one, two punch or one like top three, like movies, um compared to others that could be kind of a fun one that we'd have to put a lot of thought into mm. but this is up to- there this is 98 is definitely up there for me in terms of like one two punches because again i put lauren uh miseducation lauren hill i have at five and um Aquemini is in my top 15 best albums of all time too so it's it's definitely up there it's a interesting year home run chase yeah a lot of shit going on and- the Yankees winning uh, a record amount of games in baseball. It's a uh, 98. So it's the 25th anniversary of 98. So we'll be hearing about a lot of things from that year. I always thought it was interesting when I was a kid that 98, I believe every champion was like part of a repeat in, in the North American sports. So the 98 Yankees didn't repeat, but they had won a 96 and they were about to win a 99, 98 Red Wings repeated the Bulls repeated and the Broncos repeated. Wow. So a lot of dynasties in 98. Honestly, the thing is, too, that I'm thinking about it now. I'm trying to look really quick now, but thinking about it more like. This is just like such a heavy one two punch, but the rest of the year, there it was really not a great year for music. Like otherwise, like, again, we're talking about two of the best albums ever, in my opinion. But there, there's really not a lot of depth. Like, I really, I don't think that there's another album from 1998 that I could say that I like legitimately love. And I think that's in part just because of maybe like I haven't heard all of them of like the the higher end ones. But just in general of like you know artists I know, records that I know have a lot of notoriety and that I've just listened to before. Um, yeah, it really it it does not do it for me. I'm going through this list right now, and there's nothing that I'm like, oh wow, yeah, that is another like classic there. So yeah, it's it that's interesting. It's a very top heavy year for music, in my opinion. Interesting. I guess that's almost the case for me in the movies as well. I look through the list. I mentioned some of them to you. I don't, but in my opinion, and also there's not a lot of certified bangers. But also, I wasn't around in '98. It's so much easier when you're around and you just see a bunch of movies because what if there's a movie like a 1998 version of like Missing? Like I saw Missing this year. But if I wasn't around for Missing, I'd probably never see it in the future. In right. all likelihood. So interesting. 
Uh, should we end with like a closing of this out with like a Buffalo sports, like a, a music and movie sandwich on Buffalo sports bread? Because I think there's something we should mention. Sure. If there's not a lot to talk about. Uh, Ron Rakuya out oh, at boy. Uh, PSE. So he was basically the president. So when we talked, this is a while ago now, probably a year ago around this time, we talked to Joe Yurden, Sabres reporter. And when we kind of asked, like, with Kim Pagula being out, who is really running the show? And it was executive vice president, Ron Rakuya, who was a he was on the Bills side mostly, but he I believe he's still on Ad Pro Sports and he was selling that, is selling that, I should say, right now. It seems like according to Tim Graham of the Athletic. Uh, the new management team in his uh, wake, uh, the wake of him leaving, includes a Sabres slash PSE CEO, John Roth, who we kind of forgot to mention that he got brought in recently. General Counsel, Catherine D'Angelo, Vice President of Finance, Josh, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but I'm going to say Daryl Lukowski. Uh, and again, that's COO for John Roth. He's the COO of the Sabres. And Terry Pagula is the president of the Bills now. So I think – Oh, boy. They, they didn't say it this way, but I think that's basically for both the teams replacing Kim officially. Also, never been announced. can we just say with this too – maybe it's a little bit speculative, but this does not seem like it was mutual. Uh, nope, and I think we're going to find out more as, that, as we go along here because I think it may have something to do – with well i could just throw out something that it seems like might have happened i'm not saying this happened but it seems like a possibility based on some things that are being said that rakuya while he worked for pse maintained his ownership of ad pro sports even though there was some pagula involvement tim graham tweeted that he didn't really even understand the arrangement but apparently it's not a pse property and that he's selling ad pro sports to legends which legends he would have gotten in contact with because Legends is handling concessions at the new Bill Stadium. That's the company owned by, I think, Jerry Jones and Hal Steinbrenner. Uh, and maybe Bill is not happy about that. Who knows? That's a possibility. Just saying that's a possibility. I guess what I really took from it, though, before we get any more information, is that I think Kim has been replaced permanently, semi-permanently in these positions. Yep. Uh, John Roth is going to take over the Sabres business side and or has he has been running the C he's been the COO for a little bit and Terry's the president of the bills now. So I think that's, it's good to have actual structure and not just fill in the gaps. And it's good to have some kind of clarity. Like we said, the yeah. whole time we weren't looking for anything too personal, just like what's going on with the future of these positions. And I think we got half of the answer when their daughter wrote that piece for the players tribune. And she said a few things in there without saying them, but like she was saying, like she mentioned expressive aphasia, her mom never being the same again, things like that, that made it seem like, okay, this is not going to be a thing for her anymore, her running these teams. So I guess we'll see on that front. Yeah. Yes, we will. No, definitely a big update there. So it'll be interesting to see one more on obviously his exit and what that means and again how everybody's going to kind of fill into into these roles with especially i think most notably terry stepping in as president of the bills that's right yeah it's going to be well it'll be something at least <laughs> maybe something to complain about in the future who knows it's saber season baby all right and based on something i just said i have a recommendation so our recommendations have been pretty much laid out but through this second half of the episode yeah uh but let me give you another recommendation 
It's uh, not to you or any of the listeners, except for maybe one that I just mentioned. Hell Steinbrenner, sell the team. Yeah. Jackass. I, I second that. Swept by the Angels. They don't even have Mike Trout. It's bad. Yeah. Bad, so bad, 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 bad. Bad times, man. And Mike Trout hurt again. It's uh that's tough to see from How a long is he out for? I think I don't I think he got hurt two or three weeks ago and it was a six to eight week injury, which oh, happens okay. every year now. It said I remember in twenty twelve when he had like the best rookie season ever, there's a lot of comparisons thrown around, like he's this guy, that guy. I remember him being called Mickey Mantle and because of his stature and everything, that kind of makes sense. Hopefully not his life off the field. Yeah. But honestly, I think there's no way around it now. He's Ken Griffey Jr. And we'll see if he has the kind of okay <laughs> mid thirties bounce, you know, yeah. Griffey had because you got to put it also this way. They basically <laughs> Griffey at least had one good playoff series or one good playoff run. Trout didn't even get that. Yep. It, they, like they, it's it's so sad. Like these guys, Griffey was so incredible and just never played in the playoffs. And then his late twenties, early thirties, just well, really his early thirties, just destroyed by injuries. Griffey, the best baseball player to never win a championship, a World Series. Barry Bonds never won a World Series. Did he really not? I thought he did. Ted Williams didn't either. Wow. No, Bonds lost. They, Bonds was this close. In 2 they were up 5 nothing in the deciding game, and they lost. Wow. Okay, yeah, I totally got that. That Was was that against the Angels? Yeah. Oh, my God. And actually, in 92, they were up 2 nothing in Game 7 of the NLCS against the Braves, and they they blew it. Lost in in that inning. They didn't even they didn't even go to extras. So All he right, had a couple so, of those calls. Yeah. So th- he's third off third. the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Well, we love we love Ken Griffey Jr. here. I'm so sorry that that's the comparison. I mean, it's a great comparison. Obviously, Jr.'s a great like one of the best baseball players of all time. But like, damn those injuries. I know it is interesting that he's your favorite player because you basically saw none of his prime. No, I know. Like he. So you're born in 94. Yep. So his last good season was the season where you turned six. Yeah. And that was around that, like with him with the Reds was around, like that was my initial memory of him. And then obviously as I like dove in and like got way into baseball, learning more about his time with the Mariners and everything like that. And that was kind of like, it's, it was sad. Cause it's like, you're catching him at the tail end of uh, again, like his prime and everything like that. And I mean, he was, trying to think when did he leave the mariners to go to the white Sox? well you know he went mariners then reds or uh or not the mayor I mean, that's what i meant the reds to go to the white Sox. excuse me uh like oh six oh seven ish yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah. he was on the oh eight white Sox. he he was in the playoffs for them yep this, yeah because if you look at it griffey did not play a lot in the playoffs you might think differently about the 90s mariners they didn't play in the playoffs a lot he played 95 and was awesome in the the two series they played the DS and the CS and he was terrible in 97 and they lost to the Orioles maybe, or the Indians. I don't know. And then didn't make the playoffs again until 2008 and was old by then. And not that good. And then a couple of years later, Oh nine or 10 or something, he's back on the Mariners and he's a fat guy sleeping in the dugout. And it's yeah. like, what happened? man? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I know. And that's what's such a bummer is that I was really hoping that, well, not really hoping I should say, but like, I wish I could have gotten to see him like really in his prime with Seattle and everything like that. But even still, I mean, it was cool getting to like see him with the Mariners. Like he was like my first guy. It was him and Derek Jeter were like my two guys. Like when I was 
as young as I can remember and really, really got into baseball, it was like those two for me were like everything. And I was just like totally enamored. And so, yeah, very, very sad. I have a Ken Griffey Jr. Reds jersey. Wow. Oh, yeah. Griffey, A-Rod, Randy Johnson, Edgar Martinez. No World Series appearance. Absolutely. For that, for the Mariners. That's crazy. Someone pointed this out before. Last thing, because this is a super long episode. Uh, You could make decent arguments. You probably... I mean, you wouldn't, they're not all correct, but they're reasonable arguments that you could say Griffey's the best center fielder ever in his prime, prime Griffey, prime A-Rod, best shortstop ever, prime Randy Johnson, best left-handed pitcher ever, prime Edgar Martinez. I think this is just correct. The best DH ever. On the same team, no World Series. They missed the playoffs with these guys in 96 and 98. Jesus, that's insane. They did trade Randy Johnson. And then the weirdest thing in baseball history, A-Rod leaves, Griffey leaves in different years. Uh, or sorry, Griffey leaves first, then A-Rod. They've already lost Randy Johnson and a couple other guys. I think Jay Buhner had gotten hurt, seriously injured. 2000, they lose the ALCS, lose A-Rod, come back and win 116 games. Like Brett Boone and Mike Cameron and Jamie Moyer and yep. a bunch of randos. And they still lost the ALCS to the Yankees. It didn't change anything in that regard, but that's still funny to me. What What a time. Anyway, wild what a, stuff. What an episode. We went for way too long. Way too long. Well, everybody, thanks who stuck. Thanks you to everybody who stuck with us throughout this very, very long episode. This has been another episode of Straight Up Sabers, presented by the Hockey Podcast Network and the Charging Buffalo. Make sure you're checking out both presenters of this podcast on their respective websites. Whatever streaming platform you're currently using to listen to this episode, make sure you're checking out all of our fellow shows and you're following both the Hockey Podcast Network and the so- and the Charging Buffalo on social media. We could also find us Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Straight Up Sabres. Find us on there. We'd very much appreciate any follows, likes, whatnot. And before you close out of this app or before you close out of this episode, make sure you leave us a nice little rating or review and are subscribed and are following Straight Up Sabres. Last but not least, check out our sponsors, both DraftKings and using that promo code THPN at checkout and Thin Man Brewery. Make sure you stop by Chandler Street and head to their website to learn about all the great things they have going on there. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Monday, everybody. Have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. This has been Straight Up Savers. Hey,